Our first lesson comes to us from the prophet Jeremiah. He is speaking a word of warning to the nation. Truth has been exchanged for lies. Greed has replaced justice. Peace has been proclaimed falsely. Once again, the prophet is speaking not just of an individual, but the whole nation, calling them to reclaim the truth. Listen for the word of God as it comes to us from Jeremiah 6, beginning in verse 8. Take warning, O Jerusalem, or I shall turn from you in disgust and make you a desolation, an uninhabited land. To whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? See, their ears are closed, they cannot listen. The word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. They acted shamefully. They committed abomination. Yet they were not ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. Also, I raised up sentinels for you. Give heed to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not give heed. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second lesson comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, the 25th chapter, beginning with the 31st verse. Listen to the word of God as it comes to us from one of Christ's last lessons to his followers. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate his people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those who are at his right hand, come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or without clothing and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? 
And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. And then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me. Depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me naked and you did not give me clothing sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he will answer them. Truly, I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? O Lord, may some word that is heard today be yours, that hearing we might follow you into eternal life. And all God's people said, Amen. Last month on Jazz Sunday, I spoke about improvisation it seemed to strike a chord, so to speak. I explored the parallels between life and improv. There is no script. We never know what surprises might come. Success is likeliest when we reach for the right tools, things like flexibility, humility, self-awareness, teamwork. But the most important factor in successful improv, knowing what the destination is, knowing the end game. It's, it's only by being really clear about where the plot is supposed to lead that you have any prayer of getting there. And if it's true for improv on stage, how much more is it true for improv in life. Now, as people of faith, we're blessed with the belief that we have the very best improv director and troop leader of all time, Jesus Christ. Jesus, better than anybody, knows where the story is supposed to lead. Jesus knows the destination that God intends, and Jesus is more than ready to help us get there. Now, I've thought about this on a personal level as I addressed before, but, but this week, this week in the wake of the inauguration with our new president and vice president beginning their terms, it made me wonder, it made me wonder what is the destination God desires for the drama of our nation? 
Well, I'm not the first to ask this, of course. And I'm grateful beyond measure to David Cadu, who shared with me a sermon by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that I hadn't seen before, preached on Independence Day in 1965 in his pulpit at the Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. King titled his message, The American Dream. Remember, that was three years before his I Have a Dream speech at the Lincoln Memorial. Presciently, King points back to the dream of our founders, a dream that points to the destination that God desired for us all along. What is the substance of the original American dream? King says, it is founded in these majestic words of the Declaration of Independence, words lifted to cosmic proportions. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by God, creator with inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. This is a dream. It is a great dream. King goes on to unpack that dream. He says, the first saying we notice in this dream is an amazing universalism. It doesn't say some men, it says all men. It doesn't say all white men, it says all men, which includes black men. It doesn't say all Gentiles, it says all men, which includes Jews. It doesn't say all Protestants, it says all men, which includes Catholics. It doesn't even say all theists and believers. It says all men, which includes humanists and agnostics. And he says the dream goes on to say, another thing that ultimately distinguishes our nation and our form of government from any totalitarian system in the world, it says that each of us, each of us has certain basic rights that are neither derived from nor conferred by the state. In order to discover where they come from, it's necessary to move back behind the dim mist of eternity. They are God-given, gifts from his hands, Never before, King says, never before in the history of the world has a socio-political document expressed in such profound, eloquent, and unequivocal language the dignity and worth of human personality. The American dream. The American dream reminds us that every man Every man is an heir of the legacy of dignity and worth. He is so right. He is so right. And yet, and yet this is also true. 
even when we begin on the right path, even when we begin with the right dream, even when we have God's destiny to start, we always run the risk of veering off the road. So it was for the Israelites when Jeremiah spoke to them, the prophet is speaking to a nation that presumes itself both faithful and invincible. They are the chosen people, bearers of the sacred covenant. They espouse God's law and claim to bear God's name. Yet the prophet is warning them all is not right. Though the enemy is not yet named, it soon will be. The Babylonians are coming to defeat them. Moreover, the defeat of the people of Judah is no accident. It is the price, the price of their faithlessness. According to the prophet, the word of the Lord to them is an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. For, for from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. And from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They've treated the wound of my people carelessly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Thus says the Lord, stand at the crossroads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way lies and walk in it and find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. The Israelites in Judah are not the first to veer from the path towards God's destination, nor are they the last. America. America, of course, has long aspired to be exceptional a city on a hill, a light to the nations. Though the founders based their vision not on a strict Christian observance, but as Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, a vision grounded in nature and nature's God, many early Americans, primarily Puritans and Calvinists, believed that we were destined by God to be a great Christian nation. By the mid-19th century, manifest destiny was a well-worn slogan. God's plan for our nation to expand, taking over territory east and west and north and south. So while it was crucial to our founders that all were welcome, that religious freedoms were guaranteed, unlike the nations they fled in Europe, a particular brand of Calvinist Puritan values took hold. And while I believe, I truly believe that American Christianity got a lot of things right, 
I must confess, it also got an awful lot wrong. Maybe you saw the article in this last week's LA Times titled, The Dying Religion of Christian America, written by Richard Hughes, Professor Emeritus of Religion at Pepperdine. While I disagree with some of his points, I, I do concur with this. The form of Calvinism, he says, the form of Calvinism as it has played out in the US explicitly stands for Christian dominance, but also implicitly promotes two other forms of cultural and political power, whiteness and patriarchy. Virtually every other form of Christianity that emerged from Western Europe and took root in the United States did the same. And by the 1950s, most Americans understood that the ideal of Christian America meant Protestant dominance, white dominance, male dominance, heterosexual dominance. There was little quarter given to anyone who seriously questioned these boundaries. I think he's right. Being American meant being Christian, and being Christian prioritized white, male, Protestant, hetero authority and power. Professor Hughes goes on to contend that this system is dying. And a dying belief system, he says, can inspire unthinkable deeds, even unthinkable acts of violence, as its adherents attempt to preserve its power. Now, that's not my focus for today, but given recent events, I think it needs to be said. And as an Armenian, whose grandparents narrowly escaped the violence wrought by a dying Ottoman Empire, I must include that point. This isn't theoretical, it's evident in history around the world. But my main point is this. Too many times, American Christianity forgot its central purpose, its, its real destination. As Hughes puts it, to be clear, the, the, the dying American religion has, has little to do with Jesus, little to do with Jesus who had a very different point of view, who consistently lifted up oppressed and marginalized people, women, the poor and ethnic my, minorities, for example. The dying American religion, he says, has everything to do with white patriarchal dominance. Like, like the ancient Israelites, we presumed our special place in God's heart, presumed our privileged place in fulfilling God's agenda, presumed even that we had God's agenda right. And, and maybe that presumption is the heart of the problem. Once we presume, we're, we're not looking for anything that contradicts that belief 
And all the while, all the while, we didn't even see that we were veering off the path of Christ's way. Now, it needs to be said that there is good news in this. There is good news in this fading privilege. Good news that our ears might be open to hearing God's word anew. Good news that our eyes might be open to see the true destiny God wills for us. That our hearts might believe the true end game that God desires for us. Scripture keeps trying to spell it out for us, to point the way. Isaiah's call, let justice flow down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And Micah's call, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. St. Paul's call, let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And we're better. We're better to see God's desire for us than in Jesus' own words that we heard today. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, the King will say to those at his right hand, come. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me, naked and you gave me clothing, sick and you took care of me in prison and you visited me. Truly I tell you, Jesus says, truly I tell you, as you did it to one of the least of these in my family, you did it to me. This, this is the destination God intends for us. And this is the direction where we must now head. 55 years ago in his Independence Day sermon, Martin Luther King said it this way. Now more than ever before, America is challenged to realize its dream. For the shape of the world today does not permit our nation the luxury of an anemic democracy. And the price that America must pay for the continued oppression of the Negro and other minority groups is the price of its own destruction. For the hour is late and the clock of destiny is ticking out. We must act now before it is too late. Beloved in Christ, the clock of destiny is ticking out. We must, we can act now 
before it is too late, if we're finding our way to the destiny that God would have us reach. And today, today I share with you the urgency of hope. Whatever your views of our new president, whatever your opinions of Inauguration Day, I hope you were able to hear that hope that rang from young poet laureate Amanda Gorman's words in her poem, The Hill We Climb. I cannot do her words justice, and I urge you to listen to her prophetic presentation. But I am bold to leave you with her encouragement, her hope, her reminder that we not only must find our way to the destiny God has in mind, even more, we can find our way, our way to be that shining city on a hill, our way to be a true light to the nations once more. So as we close, let a portion of her words be now our prayer. When day comes, we ask ourselves, where can we find light in this never-ending shade? The loss we carry, a sea we must wade. We've braved the belly of the beast. We've learned that quiet isn't always peace. And the norms and notions of what just is isn't always just is. And yet the dawn is ours. And yes, we are far from polished, far from pristine, but that doesn't mean we are striving to form a union that is perfect. We are striving to forge a union with purpose to compose a country committed to all cultures, colors, characters, and conditions of man. And so we lift our gaze, not to what stands between us, but what stands before us. We close the defied because we know to put our future first, we must first put our differences aside. We lay down our arms so we can reach out our arms to one another. We seek harm to none, and harmony for all. Let the globe, if nothing else, say this is true, that even as we grieved, we grew, that even as we hurt, we hoped, that even as we tired, we tried, that we'll forever be tied together, victorious, not because we will never again know defeat, but because we will never again sow division. Scripture tells us to envision that everyone shall sit under their own vine and fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. If we're to live up to our own time, then victory won't lie in the blade, but in all the bridges we've made. This is the promise to glade the hill we climb, if only we dare.
It's because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's a past we step into and how we repair it. So let us leave behind a country better than the one we were left with. Every breath from my bronze-pounded chest, we will raise this wounded world into a wondrous one. We will rise from the gold-limbed hills of the west. We will rise from the wind-swept northeast where our forefathers first realized revolution. We will rise from the lake-rimmed cities of the Midwestern states. We will rise from the sun-baked south, we will rebuild, reconcile, and recover, and every known nook of our nation and every corner called our country, our people, diverse and beautiful, will emerge, battered and beautiful. When day comes, we step out of the shade, aflame and unafraid. The new dawn blooms as we free it. For there is always light. If only we're brave enough to see it. If only we're brave enough to be it. Amen. Thank you.